You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. Foundation Radio is brought to you by 10th Ward Barbershop. Serving the historic 10th Ward in downtown Lawrenceville, 10th Ward Barbershop is a full-service barbershop offering quality haircuts, beard trims, and hot shaves. Adam gets his hair and beard trimmed by the owner of the shop, Ryan Kane, and he loves the laser point precision cuts and lineup he provides to him and countless other satisfied customers. But you don't have to take Adam's word for it. WWE superstars Corey Graves and The Fiend Bray Wyatt frequent 10th Ward for all their hair and beard trimming needs. Right now, all all cuts and trims are by appointment only. So head over to their website at 10thwardbarbershop.com and book your appointment now with Kane, Jordan, and the rest of the team at 10th Ward Barbershop. That's 10thwardbarbershop.com. And we thank them for supporting the podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Foundation Radio is brought to you by The Dugout. The Dugout provides custom quality apparel at an affordable price. Modern style mixed with classic designs, you'll find retro t-shirts brought into the 21st century. Adam has several of his favorite t-shirts in rotation from the team at The Dugout, including customized Dudley Boys, Prince in the Revolution, and the Notorious B.I.G. t-shirts. Right now, if you purchase your items through their Etsy site and use promo code FOUNDATION, you'll receive 15% off your entire order. That's right, 15% off your entire order. Follow them on Instagram at The Dugout Brand. Follow the link on their Etsy shop and use your promo code FOUNDATION for 15% off your entire order. The Dugout, custom quality apparel at an affordable price. and good morning world welcome to foundation radio my name is adam barnard thank you so much for joining me today my guest uh is uh had a long career 45 year washington career uh he served in the office of the u.s trade uh under the clinton administration first as the general counsel and then chief negotiator with uh, japan and canada currently he is the author of the new book the betrayal how mitch mcconnell and the senate republicans abandoned america my guest today is mr ira shapiro ira thank you so much for joining me i'm really looking forward to this conversation Adam, it's great to be with you, and thank you for giving me the chance to talk about the book and issues related to it. Um, it I had a long, I had a long career in Washington. Uh, spoiler alert for everyone who's listening: I'm kind of old, so that's how you could have a 45-year career. But I have had a long interest in the Senate. Uh, I got hooked on it early. Uh, sort of as a Senate intern right out of college and came back to work 12 years there and had wonderful years there. And then later on, when I was doing other things, I looped back in 
many years after I had left because I was frustrated with the decline of the Senate. So I wrote my first book in two th- that came out in 2012, which was The Last Great Senate, Courage and Statesmanship in Times of Crisis. Then six years after that, I wrote another one, and now I've written the third and last of these Senate books. So let's talk about it. <laughs> I think uh, the best place to start really is to kind of give like a brief uh, you know, introduction, if you will, uh, in regards to what you call the last great Senate, because, you know, as, a, as someone who studied history, um, I'm familiar with a lot of the uh, workings of the Senate, specifically like Joseph McCarthy and the uh, the Inquisition on the Communist Party. Um, so you think about those things in context and you look at the historical narrative uh, and you think to yourself sometimes you're like, wow, it can't get any worse than this. It can't get any more obstructive or, you know, in some cases weird than this. And then you think about, you know, from President Carter to the 1980s and the Reagan Revolution, um, would you say that Mitch McConnell was really the flashpoint for where we are today in terms of this ultimate betrayal in Congress, or do you think it started before him? And tell me a little bit more about why you think that might be. Well, that's a great question, and thanks, because the context is important, and because I'm older and because I've thought about the Senate for so long, I realized that some of this is not in, you know, in the, in the uh, memories of younger, certainly of younger people who are many of your audience as well. Um, I made the argument in my first book that we had what I, I then called the last great Senate, but the truth is it may have been the only great Senate. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, there was an unusual Senate which for a variety of reasons was able to come together and address many of the most difficult issues facing America. It was what I called the the great Senate functioned with a kind of bipartisanship and mutual respect and trust. Uh, Part of that was the so-called greatest generation, the World War II generation that came home, got into public office and viewed the country a certain way. Part of it, though, was uh, the the distance between the parties wasn't that large. There were liberal and moderate Republicans from the Northeast and the Midwest. There were conservative Democrats from the South. And so the chances of cross-party agreements were much better. Um, Over time, and that that, the Senate stayed and maintained some of that momentum even through the 80s when it was a more conservative Senate. But over time, the parties got further apart. Uh, Genuine... and practice the different kind of politics. And by that, I refer primarily to two people who I think had the most influence in our politics before Donald Trump, Newt Gingrich in the 80s and Mitch McConnell after that. I wonder when you say Mitch, you know, as far as uh, Newt Gingrich goes, I know he was a, a really loud player 
uh, in the, the sort of this paradigm shift that happened inside of uh, Congress and then the national political conversation. As someone who works in the media, and I was, I was thinking about this as I was reading you know, some of the, the introductory notes uh, in the book uh, about Newt Gingrich, and one of the things I thought about Im- immediately was the, the fairness doctrine going away. How much of a part of that do you think played into the rise of Newt Gingrich? And maybe not even so. Let me craft it in a way maybe to tie it in a little bit better. Um, how much of that do you think helped amplify the message of Newt Gingrich um, to allow those thought processes to get to where we are today? I I think that's a great question, Adam. And I do think a changed media uh, has played an important part in our politics uh, degenerating. Um, With Gingrich, it actually, I think, started more, even more with uh, the televising of the House, uh, with the House being televised, Gingrich used C-SPAN uh, to project his, his messages every day. But as the media changed, as the 27, 24-7 cable media took hold and media voices became shriller and unconstrained by the fairness doctrine, everyone sort of all of a sudden had their own, you know, had their own media to follow. Uh, and no, no stations were obligated to bring in uh, opposing points of view. So I do think that has had a lot of effect. Gingrich, um, Gingrich reviewed politics as war. Uh, and he thought the Republicans had been much too uh, accommodating with the Democrats. So he changed the model. And it had a very profound and lasting change. McConnell came later, uh, and he's regarded as sort of not Gingrich, but actually he substituted his own unique brand of poison. Yeah, it seems like he, over the years, McConnell has really followed the the playbook that Gingrich laid for him, almost in a way that has turned the volume up uh, on a lot of the processes and policies that he that he. He had he had done in the 90s. And I think that's a an incredibly important point, too, is that the biggest difference. And I think that shows now in a lot of the conversations that we have in the country about politics and policy and things of that nature is it seems as though the Democrats are still fighting a, a specific war uh, in the sense of diplomacy, in the in the sense of this cross party unity. And it seems like it seems based on actions and things of that nature that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans really don't have the ability or the time to do that anymore. Would you say that that's a fair analysis that the Democrats haven't fully gotten to the point where they can say, hey, we're not we're, we're not about party unity anymore. We're just going to focus on our objectives and our goals in a way that the GOP has. Do you think that is a possibility of happening at this point? Well, I think you're making a good point. And it's certainly, (laughs) I think about it a lot, it's certainly something that has preoccupied Democrats. Most Democrats in their heart of hearts don't believe that their party is tough enough. They don't believe that the Democrat, they they would say the Democrats bring a policy paper to a knife fight, or they're playing baseball while the Republicans are playing football, etc. I think it's I was thinking about that the other day because I do think it's a real problem. When you have one party 
that is not playing by the rules and customs of American politics. That's the Republicans. You're faced with a very difficult choice. Do you go that road and sort of it's kind of you compete and it's sort of a downward spiral, kind of the race to the bottom, which is problematic. But the other strategy is also problematic, namely, we'll play by the rules, you won't, and we'll get clobbered. And I I often find that the Democrats are stuck between those two options. I've tried to outline various alternatives out of that box, one of which is I'd like the moderate or more moderate Senate Republicans, for instance, to break with Trump first and then break with McConnell as well. Well, they haven't done that that much. So my second alternative is that we have to smash this version of the Republican Party. I agree. The only one that really comes to mind um, is really is Mitt Romney during the um, impeachment uh, proceedings was the only one that really crossed that line and said, yeah, you know, at, at great personal and political risk was the one who said, nope, I'm not standing for this and I'm going to do that. And I and before we get into, you know, more of, you know, sort of picking apart McConnell and, and some more of, you know, his top tier. <laughs> There's never, never enough time to pick apart McConnell. <laughs> his top tier betrayal uh, uh, options that he has. Um, what do you think? You know, you've studied the Senate for a long time and, and you're very well versed in, in a lot of these things. What do you think it is about Trump? or maybe even McConnell, that doesn't allow some more of the moderate Republicans to come out fully and say, you know what, we we don't stand for this. This is not what we want. This is not the type of policy we want. This is not the type of, you know, uh, image we want to portray. We are country over party. What do you think it is that's stopping a lot of these folks from from making that jump and saying, no, we're not going to be a part of this anymore, and we're going to do what's right for the country? What do you think that that attributes to? I think you've put your finger on on a real question that everyone everyone raises or a lot of the great interviewers raise. And it, I've thought about it a lot. Um, I think that what has happened is that unlike the great Senate that I wrote about, the current senators, for various reasons, don't have the understanding of what it means to be a senator. They don't believe in country over party. Uh, They put their personal interest and their party political interests first and second, and the country last. Uh, I think, full disclosure, Adam and audience, I probably wrote my third book because my second book ended on a slightly positive note. And I was feeling guilty about it. I think I thought in the second book ran through the first 10 months of Trump. And I saw evidence that there were enough Republicans who understood the danger that Trump posed. There was evidence of that, particularly with respect to Russia and his ties to Putin, winning or unwitting asset to Putin. But what happened was. Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, two independent-minded people who were speaking out, retired. John McCain passed away. Lindsey Graham 
the best part of Lindsey Graham died with John McCain. Mm. And so the group that was there that might have been the counterweight vanished, it diminished. Others of them, either from political cowardice because of Trump's popularity or because our politics are tribal, just never stood up at all. And I've been shocked. I, I call it sort of the coalition of the shameless McConnell and Graham and the shameful uh, Lindsay, uh, Lamar Alexander, Rob Portman, people who know better. So, but I, I come, I, it took me a long time to put my finger on it, but I think it's the fact that they had no pride in the Senate and no sense of what senators should be. It's a difficult, it's pretty bleak. It's, yeah, pretty it's, a, bleak. it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, because it's hard without the benefit of of the analysis of what they're thinking or perhaps what you know their calculus is behind the scenes. It's hard to really no, no, that's answer right. that. You know, it's hard. To, I, I would I would argue that it's hard to answer that, but it is very confusing. I think in in aspect too for someone like Lindsey Graham, who was such a vocal critic of Donald Trump and and John McCain's best friend. Once John McCain passed away, to see him do this complete 180 was was jarring. I, I feel like it was very jarring, not just for me, but a, a decent majority of the American public. No, I think it was jarring. Um, and I think one can never be 100% certain. But if you look at it, you find that by his own admission, Lindsey Graham loves to be relevant and he decided that he could be most relevant by becoming Trump's best friend. And so he struck up this particular relationship with Trump and he played golf with Trump. Yeah, he liked the glamour of it, I suppose. But he would also he would argue, yeah, I could be more relevant and more effective if I had a relationship with the president. You know, they all somebody said to me while I was thinking about the book. The capacity for rationalization is almost endless. You know, well, I can I can do more for my state and the country if I stay friendly with Trump. And if I have to change my position completely from what I used to think and say, or if, by the way, I have to disregard an unprecedented assault on our, our country's democracy, well, at least I'm relevant. Absolutely. I, uh, I think it's... Um... I think it is. I think you're right. I think that the assessment of the shameless and the shameful is is absolutely relevant in this conversation because I feel like at a certain point you have to give up those aspects of shame in order to look yourself in the, in the mirror and in the eye every day when you wake up and say, yes, I'm doing this and I know that this is wrong. Um, it, it can be very confusing I mean, and, and very, very overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, is it, take Rob Portman of Ohio. No, I've known this is one of the few people I actually know from when he was trade representative. He's got an excellent record in public service. Uh, he served in the, the Bush cabinet, et cetera, Congress a long time. Um, he, when he announced that this year, uh, 20, whenever he announced 2021, that he was going to retire, he said, I'm retiring because this is so partisan that I, you know, it's, I can't accomplish anything. Well, it's so partisan because he gave his vote to McConnell on everything. If he didn't want it to be so partisan, he could have helped stop it. 
So, I mean, to me, that's a frustration that these people abdicate and then they complain about the condition of the Senate. That's a fair point because that's something that I noticed that's a theme in, in the book um, as far as, you know, things that Mitch McConnell says, you know, when he he is very visibly obstructing Barack Obama's legislative advancements and policies uh, and then turns around and says, oh, well, this is Pelosi playing political games and it's, you know, it's political, you know, brinksmanship yeah. and, and this, that and the other. And it's just like, well, wait a second. We're all watching the same thing. We are all watching the same scenarios and circumstances play out. And it's very clear that the obstruction is not coming from the Democrat side. It's coming from the Republicans. It's a very clear, well, I think, you know, uh, go ahead. No, I agree with that. And I, one of the frustrations is not only does McConnell win a lot, but he then turns around and says, and by the way, you were at fault. You know, mm-hmm. he likes to say the Democrats started the judicial wars and they were responsible for every escalation of the judicial wars, even though we know that the judicial wars escalated when McConnell blocked the consideration of Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court. So, you know, it, it's and, and and the reason this is important is. Good faith engagement in the issues, can, that's the only way you can overcome differences in a difficult, contentious country and actually legislate. You've got a chance when people are engaging in good faith. But if you put a bad faith player at the center of the process and McConnell's a bad faith player, then you're going to have what we have. A government that's been obstructed for years of when Democrats were president and all of a sudden turned into a battering bulldozer, a battering ram when Trump was president. I think that's a really important point that you brought up, though. And one of the things that I definitely wanted to talk about was sort of the uh, the duality or the dichotomy um, of the Merrick Garland and Amy Coney Barrett uh, Supreme Court nominations. Sure. Because um, sure. I think I don't think enough analysis and I don't think enough attention is given to sort of how outrageous or, uh, for lack of a better term, how unique of a situation that was for the Merrick Garland nomination not to be pushed through. I mean, we were talking about more than a year's worth of time between the death of Antonin Scalia and the election of of twenty you know twenty twenty uh, or twenty sixteen rather in order to uh, you know pick and fill this seat. It was an unprecedented. It felt like an unprecedented uh, obstruction and an unprecedented uh, a lack of movement and an abandonment of their job as a, as a Senate majority. Um, do you think that? Well, that, it was. Yeah, and do, it was. It was. Un, you're exactly right. It was slightly under a year, but you're exactly right. It was unprecedented, and McConnell not only did it, but he said, "No, this is the way it's been done before." Completely untrue. We have had any number of Supreme Court justices confirmed in election years. Most recently, it was Anthony Kennedy in 1988. It was unprecedented. It was pure power play. Now, he couldn't have done it if some of the Republicans had stood up against him. And he probably couldn't have, might not have succeeded if, the Democrats had managed to raise it as an issue and make it more of an issue than they did. 
we can argue or not argue. We can consider why that didn't happen. My, but it was an unprecedented action and had a lasting effect on the Supreme Court because it denied the fifth seat to a de- to a Democratic appointed justice. Fast forward, of course, to the Amy Coney Barrett situation. All of a sudden, McConnell's rule that you can't consider a justice <clears throat> nominated in an election year, that goes by the wayside. You can consider a justice nominated in the closing weeks of an election that the president is going to lose, and you're going to vote on it eight days before an election. Outrageous. I, you'll get to my chapter in the book. I, reg- I call it the banana republic confirmation. It had no visible relationship to anything a democracy should do. And that's exactly what it felt like. It felt like a banana republic confirmation. And I think, you know, I, I've, I watched the, the conversation that you had with John Podesta uh, recently regarding the book, and, and you had mentioned that. You know, Mitch McConnell probably didn't believe that Donald Trump was going to win the 2016 election. I don't think many of us believed at that point, based on all the polling and available data, that there would be anyone else except for President Hillary Clinton. So I think when Donald Trump did win the, the 2016 election, I think that changed a lot of things for Mitch McConnell. And it, and it truly, you know, at the time that Justice Ginsburg died, um, I think he saw that window of time where he said, I'm going to make the I'm going to make my lasting legacy. You talk a lot about the, um, the what you call the conveyor belt of the uh, federal judges uh, being appointed, um, you know, during his time in the Senate. And all of these things seem to really tie together. Do you think that's what McConnell's legacy is going to be is, you know, the, what I call the winning of the culture wars, you know, with the level of federal judges? Because we know now that Roe v. Wade is, is all but dead at this point um, outside of the official ruling coming out from the Supreme Court. Um, and that is part and parcel to not just the Merrick Garland overruling, uh, but also the appointment of Amy, Amy Coney Barrett. What do you think that McConnell's legacy is? Do you think that's going to be his his over overreaching legacy is not just about the betrayal and not just about the obstruction in the Senate, but the fact that he was able to really complete what seemed like Ronald Reagan started in the 80s? Yes, I think that is his legacy. His primary legacy, and I think it is a, I think it is, he's done great damage to the Senate, to the court, to the Constitution, and to the country, and that's his legacy. And one reason I wrote the book is because you got to try to get the history right a little bit, and I'm hoping to contribute to that. The other reason is to try to. It's a call to action for the 2022 Senate elections. The only way to respond to this, in my view, is to elect more Democrats, defeat more Republicans, diminish his power, and signal to the Supreme Court these five or six people who are prepared to do whatever they want to do at the moment, that there's political outrage about that. Will it work? We'll see, even if it happens. But it worked before uh, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to stack the Supreme Court packet. He was rebuffed, but it had his winning the his reelection in 1936 
had an effect on the Supreme Court justices. Elect, they often follow the election results, and so they moderated their views, even though the court was not packed. But look, I understand when people who are Democrats say, boy, we, we, isn't it too late? I understand that. I, I, the only things I've lobbied on in recent years were Kavanaugh and Barrett. I knew what the stakes were. It's um, it's very concerning, especially in Pennsylvania right now too. Watching you know this, this uh, <laughs> yeah. you know the the Senate race on the Republican side. I know John Fetterman uh, is the Democratic candidate, but we currently are waiting to see the results. At the time this airs, we still may not even know the results of the Dave McCormick, Doctor Oz, you know, race. Uh, right. It seems as though that it's 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 you know Trump has. I've always felt this though that Trump was the sort of the the call or the. Uh, the reaction to uh, Mitch McConnell. And what I mean by that is like Trump is just a microcosm of the Senate because a lot of the things that Trump was able to do, he wouldn't have been able to do without the complicity of Mitch McConnell and the Senate. And I want to, I know you talked about him very briefly in the book, but I'm I'm just curious about this as well. What part do you think that Paul Ryan played uh, as speaker of the house in any of this as well? Do you think he has the same proverbial blood on his hands as Mitch McConnell does? Or do you think he was just playing more of a, of a, of a game politically uh, and let Mitch McConnell do the dirty work? Well, I think the re- look, I, I think it's a good question. I think that Ryan's legacy, such as it is, is going to be minimal compared to McConnell's. Part of that, of course, is that one House Republican leader after another finds themselves discarded and on the side of the road because the House Republicans are so crazy. But the other is that if McConnell's main legacy is the Supreme Court, uh, the House has no part in it. So McConnell was vastly more important and impactful than Ryan or any House leader could be. There's a lot of information in the book uh, regarding Mitch McConnell's just betrayal after betrayal and, and you know, obstruction and, and everything else that he's done. But what would you say was his biggest betrayal to the country? I know we haven't even really talked about the COVID-19 pandemic where there's a great section in the book where you really go into detail about how Trump's failures as, you know, in leadership were in step with a lot of the things that McConnell was doing not even so much as a failure to act. It was just a, it felt like a complete ambivalence by Mitch McConnell doing anything initially, uh, as far as the pandemic went. Um, what would you say is his, is McConnell's gravest betrayal to the country? Well, I think the Supreme court is, I think that, and I would put it this way, and this is, this is really old history for, for your audience, but I think it is relevant. Richard Nixon, when he came to be, when he became president, he was committed to moving the Supreme Court to the right. He was reacting to Earl Warren and the liberal court. He wanted to move it to the right. He actually got to four justices confirmed and he moved it somewhat to the right. But, but, nobody ever questioned the legitimacy of those justices because there was a reasonable confirmation process. Now, it turns out process actually matters. 
It's in contrast to the Garland situation and the Amy Coney Barrett situation. But the other thing is the people Nixon picked, some of them turned out to be moderate conservatives. Some of them actually turned out to be pretty liberal. They were guardians of the Constitution. They weren't hand-picked right-wing radicals that the Federalist Society came up with. And those are, the, those are profound differences. So I think the court and what he's done to the court is his greatest betrayal. Um, but I also think not, can, not standing up to Trump when Trump was telling the big lie, not convicting Trump in one impeachment trial after another, uh, the two impeachment trials, He's got he's got a record of betrayal up and down the line. And look, we're reading. You and I were talking about it before. We have another horrific school shooting. How do how do we live with a country where children have to worry about the possibility of school shooting children and their parents? Um, after in Sandy Hook when something like 25 and six-year-old kids were killed. Uh, Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey, two conservative Democrats and Republicans, came up with a gun control bill. McConnell killed it. Killed it. Uh, So he's got a lot of blood on his hands. And it feels I know that we spoke, you know, before we started recording here, we spoke about the, you know, the, the shooting that that happened in Texas. And, and you know, the as we're recording full disclosure, the, the facts are still coming out about this particular and horrific situation. And it's just it's absolutely tragic. And, you know, we're it feels like we're just about to enter another round of the thoughts and prayers conversation um, with a complete lack of any movement uh, in any way to having any kind of even coming close to a sensible gun reform. And I think it really does. It's, it's and you know, in, in, in conjunction with, uh, you know, everything that you have in the book, it just feels like more of the same when it comes to a complete lack and apathy of, of really helping anyone but himself and his political gains. Um, so it's hard, yeah. you know, it's hard to even have any any real conversation about this, knowing we're just going to walk into another situation where we're going to have more. It's just going to be thoughts and prayers and it's going to come. It's going to turn into another conversation about the Second Amendment. Well, you don't, and and the thing about McConnell is you don't really know whether what his real feelings about guns are or whether he's just delivering for that part of his donor base that is the NRA. I mean, that's, that's the horror of it, right? I mean, this is somebody who is very good at working his donor base whether it's the National Rifle Association or the fossil fuel industry, with great consequences for the country. Great, great meaning large consequences, not great consequences. Um, so it's, so yeah. my answer to all of this is we've got to get out of Mc, Mitch McConnell's America. We've got to end his destructive reign. 
my last question for you before we wrap this up today, because um, I could sit here and talk talk to you about this all day, but I'm conscious of your time. Um, you're, <laughs> no, you know, no, not my time. <laughs> it's the patience of the listeners. Hey, I, like I said, I would you know I could sit here and talk to you all day, but we're we're recapping, sort of having this 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 robust conversation about you know the the failings of of Mitch McConnell, um, but the book really feels like a caution signal as well. So. It, in your opinion, Ira, like how should we as a nation proceed going forward? You mentioned the 2022 uh, congressional races, which is, I mean, obviously based on the big lie and all the things that we've had happen in this country, you know, so far <laughs> since 2020. Um, how should we as a nation proceed? Like, what, what would be your what would what would be your recommendation? I know everybody, everyone who are Democrats. You know, they're fearful about the election and they're probably tired about having to, again, fight for the country and fight to preserve democracy. But we don't really have any choice. Um, If you want to have a better country and be on a better path forward, you've actually got to, in Pennsylvania, in my view, you have to elect uh, John Fetterman to the Senate. You have to elect Josh Shapiro to be governor. The choice in Pennsylvania is so stark uh, that it makes an enormous difference. And it's the same way if you go to Ohio or you go to Wisconsin or you go to North Carolina. You win those elections and you've got a fighting chance of turning things around or beginning to turn things around. But, you know, our democracy is hanging by a thread here. And we're fortunate, we're all fortunate, and I'm probably more fortunate because I'm older, but we're fortunate that we're not uh, in the situation of people in Ukraine who are fighting for their country and their lives in 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 a shooting war. But we are fighting for our democracy. We have to fight for our democracy. The book is called The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America. It's out now. Pick it up anywhere you get your favorite books. Ira Shapiro, I want to thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've really been looking forward to this, and I can't wait to have you back on again to talk a little bit more about this. So thank you. Adam, it's wonderful to have a conversation like this. It's what's great about radio and podcasts that you can have a decent conversation with somebody uh, and really get into the issues. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and executive produced by Adam Barnard. The show is also produced by Sam Kreps. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keane, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Our intro and outro music is produced by Dumb Ugly. Find this episode and our full archive at foundationradio.net. Follow us on Instagram at foundation underscore radio. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your favorite podcasts. This has been a Foundation Radio production. Butts Carlton, proprietor. Proprietor.